I remember starting my job at Domino's Pizza. I had like a week of training, and then after that, I was ready to start my very first shift all by myself. I was gonna run it. My boss, he had some foresight. He gave me a Thursday morning open shift, which, which was supposed to be the slowest shift of the week. And I had a delivery driver with me who had a lot of experience, and he was gonna be helpful if I had any questions or needed help with anything. It was a great plan. You know, there wouldn't be too many pizzas to make, so I could take my time and make sure they all looked delicious. And there wouldn't be too many orders, so I could take my time with the POS system and know what the buttons did. And, and customer service, I could just take my time with people on the phone and make them feel valued and appreciated. Great plan. But what my boss forgot about was the massive coupon promotion that went out to every house and every school in our delivery area the night before. I never stood a chance, guys. I sold over $1,000 of discounted pizza in two hours. Do you know how much pizza that is? It's so much pizza. Like I was slinging sauce and cheese like a madman and pizza was falling out of the oven faster than I could catch it. You seen that episode of I Love Lucy where like they're at the bonbon factory and she's just shoving it in her mouth and in her blouse because she didn't know what to do with it all. That's what I felt like at the pizza oven. Customer service, just forget about that. I need to get people off the phone as fast as possible. My delivery driver that's supposed to help me, he was in the store for all of 10 minutes that day because he was doing his job. This was a nightmare. And when it was all said and done, what I wound up with was a whole lot of ugly pizza and more than a handful of frustrated customers. And when my boss came in after that shift, he said, what happened? Why didn't you ask for help? We usually need like at least two people to handle that volume. And I told him, I thought I could do it by myself. I was confident that I could handle it alone. And this story illustrates two things. One of them is personal. I'm very stubborn. I don't like to ask for help. The second is very cultural. There is a stubborn individualism that runs very deep within our cultural DNA. I know I'm not the only person that's done something like this before. Maybe for you, it wasn't making pizza. Maybe you were trying to do a repair on your home and you ran into something you weren't entirely sure how to do, but you were confident you could figure it out and you weren't gonna call anybody for assistance. Or maybe you were trying to navigate an unfamiliar area and you swore you could figure it out. You weren't gonna stop and ask for directions. Or maybe you were just trying to lift something that was way too heavy or way too awkward or unwieldy, and you decided, I can do this by myself. Fellas, does that sound familiar? Yeah, we've all been there before. We have this rugged individualism that is just oh so American of us. This is one of our virtues and our values in our culture and in our country. And there are times where that's very good. But there are some things that we just are simply not meant to do alone. And one of those things that I hear again and again and again is faith. This Christian journey of following Jesus. There's so, so many times, it's in, if people insist, I can do this alone. I can do this on my own, by myself. Just me and Jesus, that's enough. We'll figure it out. And we hear this value, this idea expressed a lot of different ways. Everything from, I'm not real big into the institutional church, to, I don't need to go to church to follow God. I can do that fine on my own. We hear these different ideas. They all come back to one point, though. It's this misunderstanding of what the Christian faith really is. It's this idea that, that my faith in Jesus, while I have personal responsibility to him, it's this idea that it is a personal enterprise as well, an individualistic enterprise, and that somehow... By having this very personal, isolated faith, it's purer or superior to the corporate faith. That's just not what we see in the Bible, though. 
again and again and again, we see in Scripture that this faith, this journey with Jesus, is one that we are to embark on together. That's not always easy, though. There's a lot of different reasons why people prefer to go it alone. And we're going to cover some of those in this new series we're starting today called Together. We're talking about community. What does it mean to be together as a people of shared faith? What does it take to make that happen? What is the purpose that binds us together? These are some of the questions we're going to be talking about over the next three weeks. And today I figured we'd just start off just by laying out the case for why this is a together kind of faith, why we're in this together and we're not going down this road alone, just me and Jesus. And there's a lot of different reasons. We're going to hit three of them this morning. The first is just plain and simple, a logical reason. There is a strong, logical, rational reason why we are called to be together with people of shared faith. It's really just logic. And it makes sense when you start to stop, when you start to stop, that makes sense. When you stop and consider what this thing called the church really is. And when I talk about the church, I mean church with a capital C, the global church of Jesus Christ. This consists of every believer, of every nation, of every culture, of, of every denomination, of every era, period. If you are a believer in Jesus, you put your faith in him to save you from your sins, you are by default a member of the global church of Jesus Christ. You didn't have to sign up for it or raise your hand. It just happened. Okay. Now, that word church is an interesting word. Some of you know this, some of you don't, but the New Testament that we have in our Bible, it wasn't originally written in English. It didn't just fall out of the sky in the NIV, ready for us to read. It was written a long time ago in an ancient dialect of Greek. And when we look at that language, there's, there's one Greek word that's used overwhelmingly far and above any other word to describe the church. It's the word ekklesia. And generally translated, that word means assembly. That's what it meant in secular literature. That's what it means in Christian literature. It means assembly. If you believe in Jesus, if you put your faith in him, you are a part of the assembly of Jesus Christ. Now, there is one fundamental necessity that needs to be present in order for an assembly to qualify as an assembly. We have to assemble with other people, right? One person is not an assembly. One person can be a demonstrator, one person can be a representative, but one person cannot be called an assembly by definition, by necessity. You need more than one person in the church of Jesus Christ, in the assembly of Jesus Christ that we belong to by default. We are called to assemble with one another. It doesn't make sense to say that this faith is just me and Jesus because I cannot be an assembly. The same way that I cannot be an entire team. Team is a cooperative concept. If I were to tell you, for example, that I am a part of the Monmouth College basketball team, your first question would be, really? You? Your second question, though, would probably be, like, what are practices like? And I would have to tell you something like, I don't know, I don't really go to practice. And you might have some follow-up questions like, okay, well, what is it like to play in the games? And I would say, I don't know, I don't go to the games either. And you would probably be very confused at this point and ask, well, what is it like training with a team or traveling with a team or, or really just being with the team in general? And in every instance, I would have to say, I have no idea. I prefer to do things on my own. Now, let me ask you, am I really part of the team, if that's true? I mean, maybe in title only, but realistically, no. Not functionally, not practically, 
There's no aspect of my life that qualifies or is participating in the life of the team. And the same thing can happen in the church. We can say, I believe in Jesus, I have this faith. Well, are you connected with people of shared faith? No, it doesn't make sense. Logically, fundamentally, that is a flawed idea and concept when we understand what the church is, what the assembly is, and what Jesus does when we accept him. You know, it's kind of amazing how much we will bend over backwards in our culture to insist, I don't need to be with people of shared faith. I don't need that community in my life. And we'll say things, and we'll justify it with ideas like, well, I'm not saved by church attendance. And realize that, that when things like that are said, you're essentially saying, I don't need full bladder control in order to have a good and enjoyable evening, right? Because in both instances, while technically true, in both instances, if you don't have it, your life's going to get real messy real fast. It just doesn't make sense, guys. It is not legalistic to expect the people of Jesus to gather together with other people of Jesus to worship Jesus the way that Jesus commanded us to do. We are not meant to do this faith alone. We are meant to be together. And that's just a logical, rational reason why we are to assemble. Now, notice we haven't even brought the Bible into this yet. We're about to do that now because this case for being together, it's not just a matter of logic and rationale. There is a strong historical reason why we are called to be together with people of shared faith. We see that in the story of the church. It's found in the book of Acts. If you're not familiar, Acts is, is kind of a history of sorts of the church. We see its beginning on the day of Pentecost. We see its growth and development in Jerusalem and in the region of Judea and Samaria. And then we see it explode into the rest of the Roman Empire. And it, there's a passage I want to point out, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It takes place just after the inception of the church. The Holy Spirit descends, thousands of people put their faith in Christ. And then we read this. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So upon receiving this faith, upon being saved by Jesus and the work that he's done, they start this faith journey not by going to their individual homes to practice an isolated individualistic faith, but they insist on gathering together. And they do this on a weekly, and in some cases, daily basis. They are called to be together. And this is how things start out. And really, it doesn't change for the rest of the story. When the church moves into the rest of Judea and Samaria, we see the same thing. When it moves into the Mediterranean, into the Roman Empire, we see the same thing. Regardless of culture, regardless of language, regardless, regardless of socioeconomic status, these Christian people who put their faith in Jesus, they don't go practice this just me and Jesus kind of faith. They come together. When we get out of the book of Acts and we read the letters of the apostles, which is the rest of the New Testament, we see the same thing. This is what the Bible describes as normal Christianity. It is normal for people of shared faith to want to gather together with other people of shared faith because this is not meant to be something we do alone. This is something we do together. Now, looking at that passage, Acts 2.42, you might notice some of those things they were doing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. You might notice that we do a lot of those things today. Like, it seems kind of familiar, and that's by design. This is exactly what we do today in our gathering together still. Now, we do things a little different 2,000 years later, but those elements, the apostles' teaching, or what we might call preaching, 
fellowship, being together, breaking bread, what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, which we'll do after the sermon today, and prayer, what we do hopefully for one another at various times in the service. All of those elements are present today. That's by design. It's because this is our history. It's where we come from. And anytime we deviate from our history, we ought to give pause and ask some really tough questions. Because anytime we deviate from our history, it tends to end in disaster. A good example of this is the company McDonald's. I love the, the story and just to study McDonald's as a company. It's a really fascinating story. And, and when you think of McDonald's, what comes to mind? What, what are they known for? Burgers, fries, shakes or sodas, and chicky nugs, right? We got those things. Burgers and fries mainly, though. And so long as McDonald's has stuck to burgers and fries, how they got their start, long as they're faithful to their history, they do great. But it's when they start to deviate from that history that things start to go south. Take, for example, the McLobster. That is a real thing, I promise you. Look it up. Some of you may not know what this is. This is basically a hot dog bun with artificial lobster meat. I know, I, I hooked you with that one, right? Artificial lobster meat, lettuce, and McLobster sauce. How could it go wrong, right? Not really surprising, the McLobster was a colossal failure. It reappears every once in a while for a few weeks, and then it returns to the abyss from which it came. The McLobster, why did it go wrong? Well, because when you think lobster, and you're in the mood for lobster, your first thought is not, mmm, McDonald's, right? McDonald's doesn't do shellfish. They do burgers and fries. That's their history. Anytime they've deviated, it's been a failure. The McPizza. It was like this hot pocket kind of thing. Terrible failure. Because McDonald's is not in the pizza game. They do burgers and fries. The McSpaghetti. The McSpaghetti is sometimes how I like to say it. Terrible failure. Because McDonald's is not an Italian dining establishment. They do burgers and fries. And when they stick to their history and they're faithful to that, they're great. When they deviate from that history, that's when they fail terribly. And as the church, we need to pause and ask that same question. As individual believers, am I being faithful to this history of people who for 2,000 years saw value and significance in gathering together and in doing this faith journey together? Or am I deviating from that history and insisting, I don't need other people to go on this faith journey. Me and Jesus, that's good. That's all I need. If we deviate from that history, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Now, there are a lot of reasons why we might be tempted to eschew community and togetherness. You know, maybe we're busy. Maybe our lives are just so hectic, we don't have time for Christian community. Or maybe we're tired. We worked really hard this week. We worked Saturday, we put in a lot of hours. Man, I, I'm just, I don't feel like getting up Sunday and gathering with people together. There's a lot of reasons. Some of them seem valid why we would hesitate to gather together. The early church experienced all of these as well. Remember, this is a group of people who didn't get two days a week off. They worked every day of the week because they had to or they would starve. The early church experienced busy, hectic lives. They experienced something more than this, though. They experienced persecution. And even that wasn't enough to dissuade them from gathering together. We read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, about a community of Christians who's starting to experience the cost of following Jesus. They are having their possessions stripped away, perhaps. Some of them are perhaps on the verge of being put in prison. Certainly, they're being rejected and ridiculed by their culture, even by their families. It is costing something to follow. And this is what we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. It says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up 
meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, the author of Hebrews says, look, you may be tempted to stop gathering together, but that's the opposite of what we need. It's times like this, the hardships, the trials, the tribulations, that's when we need to be together the most. Because if you're trying to face down that tidal wave all by yourself, you're going to get swept away. But together, we can encourage each other. Together, we can stand. Together, we can do this. We don't need to do this alone, church. There's a very strong historical case for doing this together. But even that isn't the whole story. Really, the strongest evidence of why we are called to be together in this faith journey is a theological one. There is a deep and profound theological underpinning to this idea that we need to be together with people of shared faith. Throughout the New Testament, depending on how you count, there are 59 or so passages. We call them the one another passages. They all tell us how to live towards one another, being people of faith. And then a list of them just by example, so you know what we're talking about. John 13, 34, we're instructed to love one another. That one shows up a lot in this list. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, we're told to be devoted to one another in love and to honor one another above yourselves. That's a twofer, two statements, one verse. Romans 14, 13, we're told, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, we are commanded to serve one another humbly in love. The rest of the items in this list, these 59 or so passages, they read pretty much the same way. We're told how to live towards one another, towards people of shared faith. Now here's where we get into the, where we got to put our thinking caps on, okay? If the New Testament is the word of God, if it's God's instruction for our life and our faith, and God's instruction is telling us to live this way towards one another, that kind of means I have to have a one another in my life with which to do this, right? Like if I'm going to take Galatians 6.2 seriously and I'm going to bear with one another's burdens, I have to have somebody in my life of shared faith whose burdens I can bear. If I'm going to love one another the way that God instructs us to do, I have to have an another in my life to do that. What I'm trying to say is this. If I really want to follow God's commands for my life, if I really want to put into practice the things he calls me to as a saved person of faith, I have to be in community with other people because it's only in that relationship that I will have the opportunity to be obedient. There's a theological reason here why we have to be together. Now, I will tell you this. It is easier to go just me and Jesus. It's a heck of a lot messier because I don't have to deal with other people's burdens and I don't have to deal with other people's mess and I don't have to deal with the disappointment that community oftentimes brings. It's a lot easier to stay away from community and togetherness. The problem is that none of those values jive with the gospel story because we don't serve a God who chose the easier road. And we don't serve a God who avoided the mess of people's lives, quite the opposite. We serve a God who put on flesh and stepped into this world, who got right in the middle of our mess. And when he was there, he went to work loving us and encouraging us, bearing our burdens and our sins, supporting us all the way up to the cross where he saved us, where he laid his life down for us. Are some of those statements sounding familiar or ringing a bell? They are the one another passages. You see, we're commanded to live this way because Jesus lived this way first. 
And we're commanded to walk down this road because he's the one that went ahead of us. In other words, if we want to become more like Jesus, if we want to be conformed to his image, we can't do that alone. We have to be together with people of shared faith. If we want to be the people God dreams us to be, it's not going to happen if I isolate myself from the rest of the church and the assembly of Jesus Christ. It's only when I step into that community that I have the opportunity to love the way Jesus loved me and to encourage the way that Jesus encouraged me, to bear with people's burdens the way that he bore my burdens. It's only together that we can achieve what God dreams for our lives and our faith. And that supremely important reason it's still only half the story. You see, if I cut myself off from the community, if I insist on a me and Jesus kind of faith, not only do I miss out on the opportunity to practice the one another passages, I also miss out on the opportunity to be the recipient of the one another passages, to be loved by someone else, to be encouraged by someone else, to have that support to have somebody bear the burdens alongside me when I'm too weak to carry them myself. You see, I cut myself off from the richness and the vibrancy of the Christian experience when I insist on doing it alone. My wife and I, we have this friend. Her name is Sabrina. And she's a pretty good cook. But she is a Pinterest queen. And she loves to get on Pinterest and find these recipes that are somewhat elaborate. But her favorite thing to do is to find household items that can substitute for other things, like those creative solutions. Like if you're out of Tylenol, chew on a, a rutabaga or something, like that kind of stuff. Well, she was breaking Christmas cookies for everybody because she's super sweet. But she realized pretty quickly into it that she was not going to have enough flour. But she remembered reading on Pinterest, I can substitute instant mashed potato flakes for flour. A little too creative for her own good. And we fell victim to her creativity because she made these cookies and, and they weren't bad cookies, okay? But they weren't good cookies either. Like, they were just these kind of dry, bland, flavorless, pasty white things. I won't even call them cookies. They're star-shaped somethings. And sometimes, that's what we end up doing with our experience of the Christian faith. We try to substitute togetherness. We try to substitute community and fellowship with other things. If I just sleep a little bit more, if I don't go to church all that often, it's not a big deal. I can stay home, I can watch the game. If I, you know, whatever. I'm not going to sign up for a small group this semester because you know, I, I want to go, whatever, fill in the blank. There are tons of things that we can substitute for that fellowship and that togetherness. But when we choose to do that, what we wind up with is a rather bland, flavorless experience of the Christian faith and journey. Because not only are we not practicing the one another, we're not receiving the blessing. We're not receiving the vibrancy and the flavor of what it means to be a part of the church, the assembly of Jesus Christ. You see, theologically speaking, there are numerous bold and incredibly important reasons why we are called to be together. Now, last week, if you were here, we instituted, or we talked about, rather, a few changes that are going to be coming to FCC around April. And a lot of these changes that we're making are designed to help us better reach those people who are not a part of our community and our faith community yet. But one of the side effects that we hadn't considered, but I'm really excited about, as we talked about this as an eldership, we discovered, you know what? This is an awesome opportunity for our church to grow closer together. 
One of the changes we're making is a change in service times. In April, we're going to be meeting at 9 and 10.30. And having those service times closer together allows for more opportunities for people to figuratively and literally rub shoulders together to see people they might not usually see, to get to know the faces and get to know the lives and the stories of people a part of our faith community. I'm not trying to insist that, that we need to know everybody in our church. That's, that's not going to happen. But we ought to know somebody in our church. We ought to have that togetherness with at least a handful of people here. And that's where small groups come in. We're going to be kicking off small groups on January 27th this semester. We're really excited about it. Unfortunately, just because we don't quite have enough leaders yet, there is limited availability. And so I would encourage you to sign up for a small group as soon as you can, because it will fill up fast. That's another plea I'll just put out here. This isn't scripted, but going off the cuff here. If you are capable of leading a small group, some of you have been approached, some of you have declined for various reasons, and we choose not to use that gift, we are limiting our ability as a church to experience togetherness and growth. I just want to put that out there. So I would encourage you, if you're not part of a small group, consider it. If you are a part of a small group, cherish it. And if you think you have the potential and the desire to lead a small group, contact us, and we'll get busy training you right now because we want this to be a together kind of church where we go on this journey together. We experience the blessing of faith together where we are stronger together. Again, I would encourage you, take that connection card out of the seat in front of you or get on the FCC mobile app, click connect, small groups, sign up today. Whatever you do, make 2019 not another year of isolation or another year of me and Jesus kind of faith. Make 2019 the year where you say, you know what, I want to do this with other people. I want to be a part of this together kind of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. And we thank you for this body. We thank you for the people here and for the lives and the stories and the faith that's present today. We thank you for the work that you've done in the lives of these people and the stories that are here, the gifts that you've equipped them with. And Father, I pray that together we would strive to be a body that serves you. We would strive to encourage one another, to love one another the way we've been loved, so that together we can be your hands and feet in this community. And together we can take the good news of Jesus and life to those who have yet to accept it. And Father, I pray that you would bless those who are together in this body, together in community, together in small groups, that they might experience the richness of your word and the commands you've laid out for us. Help us to grow to look more like Jesus, not individually and isolated, Father, but let us go on this journey together. In your name we pray, amen.